Buy and hold for the long term or active trading? That's a debate we hear very often, but how does it apply to cryptocurrencies? Today, we're going to talk about crypto trading and investing strategies and how to improve your returns. With that, you need to understand market cycles and the characteristics of crypto. You've heard of Bitcoin halving, but how does it work and how does it affect the price? How do you apply stock to flow ratio to understand Bitcoin price? How do you know what the big whales are doing in order to know where the market is going? We're also going to cover specific financial ratios and models that you can use to trade cryptocurrencies to help you get better returns in trading crypto. Now, there's a real simple way to look at the indicator on a chart to decide whether to buy or sell. But is it that simple? Well, that's where you need to understand the principles behind it. And that's what we will be learning today. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hello, my name is Andrew and welcome to another Chill with TFC session. In this series, we hope to bring on interesting and relevant people to help us learn better from various perspectives. Life is not always about learning from the people you agree with. Different perspectives shape us to be more well-rounded in our thinking. So in the pursuit of the life you love, while managing our finances well, my guest today is the CEO and co-founder of Alpha Impact, a cryptocurrency copy trading platform where you can copy the trades of other experienced traders. A disclaimer, everything you hear is not financial advice. There are risks involved in cryptocurrencies and investments, so do your own due diligence. All information presented is for educational and entertainment purposes only. With that said, let's welcome Hayden Hughes. So, well, first question I have for you. It's a bit generic and it's meant to be so that we take that as a launching sure. platform. Yeah. Buy and holder or trade? So I think there's, it's important to, do, to have both buckets, right? Now, whether or not you have time to actually trade or whether you want to allocate you know, the intensity and the energy to actually figure out how to trade uh, responsibly, uh, or if you maybe don't want to trade responsibly, that's a good way to do it as well. But either way, uh, you definitely have to have the buy and hold. So uh, just looking back a little bit, uh, Bitcoin, if you held for, let's call it a three and a half year period of time, that would be a superior risk adjusted return to pretty much anything. So Bitcoin in the short term, in six months and 12 months and 18 months, incredibly volatile. Uh, but over the long term, three years, three and a half years, it tends to be a fantastic asset in terms of risk adjusted returns. So uh, I think you have to have a little bit of, uh, of buy and hold that you just don't touch forever. You just hold on to it for 10 years, 15 years, 20 years. But definitely trading is, is something that, uh, that I do quite a lot of and uh, obviously following a top trader as well as if you can put that into your portfolio as well. So I think you have to have that trading bit. It's just a question of whether you do it yourself or subcontract to someone else. So and because different people are at different levels when it comes to crypto, because it's such a new thing, right? Yeah. When I said holder, it means hold on to your life. H-O-D-L. Holding on to your cryptocurrencies for, yeah. for dear life, which means to hold it for the long term. Yeah. But you mentioned that you do some trading as well. So how would you describe the percentage allocation of how much you're buying and holding and what coins are those and what are the specific coins that you're trading in? Yeah, sure. So I think when you come down to uh, buying and holding, you can't be buying the exciting stuff that's in the news that day. You need to be owning stuff that 
you understand, that has a long-term appeal, that you know will be around in many, many years. Most cryptocurrencies don't fit that description. So I think the way that I would uh, think about that would be Bitcoin is a store of value, Ethereum uh, and Solana, they're ecosystem plays. So there's an active ecosystem there. Then there's platform-specific tokens like the FTT token and BNB from Binance. So those are use cases and businesses that I believe in and I hold those for the long term. In terms of percentage, I think it, it depends on where we are in the market cycle. Uh, at some points in time, I would be as low as 10% in the just hold on category. And then other times it would be up to 50%. So it kind of, depending on where we are in that market cycle, I might take some from column A and put it into column B. Okay, so you mentioned some use case of uh, different coins. We'll go yeah. into that later. So sure. you mentioned market cycles as well. Let's go into that. Like, What do you mean by market cycles? How do we evaluate a crypto market cycles as compared to you know, the traditional finance? Sure. So I think in, in crypto, we tend to think of the market being more volatile. And it's more volatile for many reasons. It's uh, very, very early. We haven't really figured out what the true values of assets are. So that's part of the reason that it's volatile. But also it's 24-7. A lot of people think that the stock market is uh, big and expensive exciting and lots of stuff happening. But when you look at it, uh, stock markets trade seven hours a day or six and a half or seven and a half, depending on where. But let's just call it seven for argument's sake, five hours a week so that or five days a week. That's 35 hours of trading. Crypto trades 24 seven, 365. So that's 168 hours per week. So you're really looking at uh, what is that five and a half times more just because the markets never close. So it does tend to be faster moving, more volatile. Um, so the market cycles that we've seen in crypto tend to, you could describe it as the very early stage was just nobody knew what Bitcoin was. And 2009, it started off being one person, and then it was two people, and then it was 16 people, and then a little community evolved. And so, you know, the Bitcoin pizza, that was a famous event that happened in 2000, I think 2010, where the person, someone paid uh, something like 10 or 20,000 BTC I think it was 10,000 BTC for a pizza. That sum of money would now be worth massively more. So early on, there was really very little. Um, about 2012, 2013, crypto exchanges started coming into play. When I think about the crypto cycles, you're really thinking about from the point at which the Bitcoin supply changes. So the, these events are called the halving or halvening, depending on how you want to say it. And every four years, the Bitcoin blockchain adjusts the rate of inflation. So what that means is people you might have heard of or your listeners might have heard of blockchain uh, Bitcoin miners. People are validating transactions across the Bitcoin network. And basically it's it's just like any other transaction. They're just validating pieces of it. So all these people are collaborating. There's a reward that they get in exchange for doing that and keeping the network safe. If uh, So every four years, the Bitcoin blockchain is pre-programmed to reduce that reward by 50%. So the reward used to be 25 Bitcoins every 10 minutes, then it became 12.5. And it's just recently last year gone down to 6.25. So what happens in between these four year cycles is we have these crazy uh, bull markets and then usually a crash. So the halving usually happens uh, when prices are, I guess, starting to recover from the previous crash. And we have the halving, then within 18 months, we tend to have a crazy run-up of the crypto prices, of Bitcoin prices, which of course leads the whole market, uh, and then it crashes. But it never crashes below the previous all-time high, so to speak. So the first time this happened, uh, we Bitcoin went to, I think, 800, then it went to 20,000. Now it's crashed and recovered, and we're now at, uh, I guess, about 50,000 as we record this. So those are the cycles. 
Okay, so what's the purpose of the halving? Well, the purpose of halving uh, is to eventually make the reward go down to zero. So the theory behind the Bitcoin blockchain is that it's decentralized, right? So you're essentially paying, you have no centralized source of trust. You have a whole bunch of people collaborating on the internet to mine Bitcoin. And so to encourage them to actually do this, you're giving out a lot of Bitcoin very, very early as a reward. So the idea is that over time, you need less and less of a subsidy to incentivize new people to come onto the Bitcoin blockchain. And so over time, that subsidy starts being uh, very big and it just slowly decreases. So eventually the subsidy will actually become zero. So when we talk about market cycles, I imagine a graph, you yeah. know, like bull market goes up and then bear market goes down. And you're talking about market cycles for crypto in <clears> terms <throat> of the yeah. half, halving. Halving, yeah. Right? So how do I understand it you know, from this graph point of view? Like how, how should I see it? Could you well, explain a bit yeah, more? Yeah, sure. Um, so I think when you're in a bull market or a bear market, it tends to look like whatever is going on is very, very meaningful. But what actually tends to happen over time is that the scale of these, uh, of these, if you think of the bull markets as like a big, you can, your viewers can picture it like a up, uh, up to the right increase. It's like a half of a parabola, right? So back to year 11 chemistry or maths or whatever, geometry, calculus, you have a, you know, a exponential increasing line. Okay, a graph that, that goes that, from left to right and it's uh, increasing exponentially. Correct. Okay. correct. And I think we all, now that uh, we're in the world of COVID, we understand the principle of exponentiation. Mm. Uh, what starts small uh, doesn't stay small and it grows very, very quickly. So if you think of uh, like April 1st, 2020 daily COVID cases, that was like right before the first circuit breaker. That is a great example of what happens in a crypto bull market. Prices just go exponentially higher than they were. So it doubles every week or something like that, or every month. So that's what the graph looks like. Uh, it goes way up, way higher than it ever had been before. And then it crashes uh, back down quite a lot. So in a one-year time horizon, you would think of it like a massive spike and then a massive uh, falling off. So it would be like a, you know, like a spike pointing from down to up. But what happens over time uh, after that spike goes down, you go, it trails along and trades sideways for a while and then goes a bit lower. And then this happens again. There's another spike that's even bigger. And so the previous spike looked big at the time, but now it's only 10% of the current spike. And then it crashes again. And then the next spike goes even higher than that. So over time, if you were to think about this like an animated graph, what happened, uh, you know, seven, eight, nine years ago doesn't even register on the graph because the scale that you're now in has changed so much because of the appreciation that's occurred recently. So um, I hope that gives a bit of context. Okay, let me see if I understand it correctly. First of all, great analogy, except that in one case, when COVID cases are exponential, that's not good. But in the case of crypto, people are saying to the moon and people yeah. are, some people are happy, or investors, yeah. the traders are happy. So what you're saying is that just like a traditional market, there's there's the bull market and the bear market, yep. and it doesn't drop below the previous all-time high, which means in the short term, you see a lot of fluctuations, but if you really really zoom out yeah. the graph, right, you see it's uh, you know, going to the right and going up, yep. upwards. At least that's what we are looking at when we look yep. at the past 10 years in terms of crypto. Yep. And you're saying in the short term, like maybe seven or eight years ago, it's, it's barely registering because yeah. it's such a small uh, fluctuation in terms of the, the whole, the bigger picture. Yep. But apart from the halving, what else affects these cycles? So 
There's a model called the stock to flow model that attempts to quantify. Uh, it, it actually is related to the halving. Um, it, so what we have mathematically is when we think about Bitcoin in terms of the monetary supply, the monetary supply is fixed beforehand. So we know at every point in the past and at every point in the future how many Bitcoins there were and that there will be in circulation. So we can actually use uh, this idea of scarcity to quantify uh, we can quantify the exact scarcity by using this thing called the stock-to-flow model. So the stock-to-flow model is a ratio that measures uh, how scarce a commodity is based on how much is out there circulating, floating around in the world, relative to how much we know will exist in the future. So you can think about this. You don't have to think about Bitcoin. You can think about gold. You can think about silver. You can think about nickel or palladium. We have um, an understanding with those commodities of how much of the... Let's just talk about gold, right? Uh, and I don't know the exact numbers, but we know the, the ratios. So we roughly know how, or we have an estimation of how much gold is yet to be mined. It's still in the earth. For whatever reason, it just hasn't been mined yet. And we know how much uh, gold is uh, has been mined already today. So you could describe that gold as being sitting in vaults and in wedding rings. So it's it's out there in the world, right? Same thing with silver. So all you're looking at, it's this ratio of how much of the item is floating around, what is the stock, divided by how much is left to come, basically. So the flow is the production rate, the annual rate of production. So what you're looking at is the relationship between how much of something there is and how much can you produce in one year? Okay, so it's the flow, the rate of production, as you were saying. The rate of production, of yeah. Of the Bitcoin that's being yeah. mined. And mm -hmm. the stock will be referring to? The Bitcoin that has been mined already. Okay, yeah. okay. The, so, the Bitcoin is already out there. Yeah. Because it's been mined, okay. So the principle is stuff that is difficult to mine is usually worth a lot of money. And stuff that is easy to mine is usually not worth as much money. And the reason comes down to um, the, I guess, responsiveness of the price relative to the production. So uh, I'll give you an example. Palladium is, uh, I guess, used in cell phones and some other stuff. It's very, very easy to mine. We can, uh, if the price of palladium doubles or triples tomorrow, we can mine five, six, seven, eight, nine times more. All, right, all right? the miners in the world are going to join in. They're just going to start, right? It wasn't profitable at some point in the past, and now it is profitable. So those producers can just start producing assets very, very quickly. And what that does is it floods the palladium market, so to speak, with uh, supply, which brings down the price. So that asset, because it's so easy to produce more, is not valued very highly. Silver, on the other hand, and gold to a greater extent, are pretty hard to get out of the ground. You know, we've uh, if if the price of gold goes from one thousand six hundred to ten thousand dollars tomorrow, Barrick and all the other gold companies um, will really struggle. They can probably increase their production rate a little bit, but they can't really move it that much because it's so hard to to mine. So what that means is that gold is very very scarce, very hard to produce. So all we're looking at is the ratio, which is a relationship of how much of whatever it is is out there divided by the rate of production. That gives us a number. So we can actually draw this on a graph where gold is, I think the, the stock to flow ratio for gold is like 60. Silver is like 30. Bitcoin has now become, I think it's about 50 right now. But before May last year, it was 25. So what it gives us the ability to do is actually compare Bitcoin scarcity to other assets. And all of these assets I've mentioned fit along I guess a regression line where uh, you can 
you could see on a chart. And if your listeners want to type uh, Bitcoin stock to flow, uh, you'll see some beautiful charts by, I think it's 100 trillion, the person's Twitter name. Could be 100 billion. But anyway, Bitcoin stock to flow, there's a beautiful chart that I'm thinking of in my mind. So this ratio changes over time because Bitcoin in the past was more scarce and in the future will be less scarce. So what it allows us to do is uh, plot a future price based on that scarcity of the future scarcity. And this has been a very accurate way to kind of look at the price of Bitcoin over time. And what you see is that this model tends to predict pretty well the Bitcoin price in the future. So when you hear people talking about Bitcoin is going to 300K, Bitcoin is going to a million dollars, everyone who's saying that has looked at this stock to flow ratio. So I think it's very important, whether you believe it or not, I and mean, you know, people can decide for themselves. I think that this model has been very illustrative in the first uh, 10 years. I'm pretty convinced in the next two years, it's going to continue to be accurate. But let's see what happens after that. Help me out here. So the higher the number of the stock to flow, that means... The more scarce. The more scarce it yeah. is, and therefore value should go up. Correct. And yeah. that comes from your example of gold and yeah. pal palladium. That's yeah. what you're yeah, saying, yeah. right? And so you're looking at this stock to flow to look at the value of Bitcoin itself. And over the next two years, you're saying, or over the long term, it should be more scarce because well, it's inbuilt into the design of Bitcoin that there's a limited supply and, and therefore the value should go up. But what we are looking at so far, I mean, you mentioned the halving and this is related to the halving as well. It's all a part of the design of Bitcoin, but how does the market sentiment come to play in terms sure. of the, the whole valuation? Sure. So yeah, great question. And you know, a lot of traditional comments uh, around this topic really center along the fact that, you know, I just saw uh, yesterday on Bloomberg, they had an asset manager on saying, well, Bitcoin has value because it's scarce. The value is nothing, but because there's not very much of it, it tends to go up because people want to buy it. So that is, in my view, a very simplistic way of looking at things. Sentiment is very important. And when we think about the evolution of Bitcoin as uh, when we first started in 2009, and I shouldn't use the term we because I was not involved at that time, but when uh, Bitcoin became popular, it was really just a very small group of, we probably can call them nerds, who are, uh, who are really into cryptography. And they were obsessed with this idea of a financial system that didn't require a centralized third party. There's no central bank. Fast forward a few years, it started to become traded, uh, 2013 on exchanges, 2014. Fast forward a few years after that, you started to have derivatives marketplaces. It began to take uh, different forms over time. And so what that has meant is that people discover this at different parts in their own journeys. Uh, so most people will be familiar in 2017. That's when Bitcoin first became very, very popular. It was talked about in the news. For those that were in the industry at that time, I remember that's when I got into the industry. It was very hard to get an exchange account. You went to every single exchange and just did all the KYC procedures trying to get in quickly. See some dark LA, give them your driver's license. Exactly. <laughs> I, mean, I heard stories like that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, you have to provide KYC because mm. these companies are regulated or should be regulated. Um, so that's the journey in 2017. It was just, it was a hype. There wasn't really much happening. Ethereum uh, started in late 2015. It's a platform for what we call smart contracts. We're only really seeing now in the last year and a half to two years, real stuff being built on these assets. So sentiment, I think initially in 2017 was driven by FOMO. It was just, it was going up every single day and 
no matter what the asset is, Bloomberg and CNBC and the Wall Street Journal, if something's going up, they will write about it. Then you had an ICO boom. Then you had a massive bust when people realized these assets had grown in value too quickly. Then you had, I guess, 2019, there was Facebook came onto the scene and they started building their own cryptocurrency. Uh, and so all of these things had uh, positive or negative uh, effects on the Bitcoin sentiment. March 2020, you had Bitcoin and every other asset on the planet basically be sold off because there was a perception that we were going into a zombie apocalypse and this COVID thing was, you know, very serious and which of course it was and I don't dispute. But mm. since then, there's been a massive recovery. So some assets have, have grown more than others. So the sentiment is really based on what's happening outside in the world as well as what's happening in the crypto ecosystem as well. Well, if you look at online comments, different people take to Bitcoin or cryptocurrencies very differently. And of course, there are people calling cryptocurrency a scam. And I can understand it from the point of view that from whatever you're describing, uh, the halving and the whole built-in mechanism of it being limited in supply by itself, it just sounds like internet's magic money, you know. And it depends on whether enough people believe in the story. Because if there aren't enough people believing in the story of cryptocurrency, then the cryptocurrency itself, if no one is using it, then it has no value. Am I correct yeah. to say that? Yes, that's correct. It, it, it is like any uh, asset that is bought and sold. If no one believes in Tesla anymore, their share price will go to zero and Tesla will be removed from the stock market. It's a buyer and seller matching system that we live in. So mm. yeah, that's a fair statement. Okay, so it's like for fiat currency, you and I believe in the government that backs it and therefore you know, we take out whether it's US dollars, Sing dollars and we believe in it because well, we, we, we believe that someone or the government is backing it in this case. Yeah, and you know, it's interesting, Bitcoin was created, uh, I guess in some ways as a protest against currencies like that. And one of the core, I guess, criticisms was that monetary policy should not be set by politicians. And if you were, if you look at inflation, for example, we, we print money all the time, and that is causing an increase for those that did economics 101. An increase in the monetary supply means an increase in prices that causes inflation, which is why basic stuff, coffee, bread, internet, all that kind of stuff costs more now than it did 25 years ago because of the government printing more and more money. So what the Bitcoin, um, I guess, maximalists would say is that the government, who is the, the one who's multiplying the monetary supply, is actually destroying your savings. If you hold a dollar, if you have a dollar now and you hold on to it for one year, you have less purchasing power in one year. And if you look at it on the graph, uh, you know, the, the St. Louis Fed uh, inflation value of a dollar, I think is the name of the chart. Over the past uh, 90 years, it, they've destroyed something crazy like 99% of the purchasing power of a dollar. So you have on one hand a currency that is decreasing in value, and, and I would put Singapore dollar and, and every other currency in that bucket, especially the US. And then on the other hand, you have uh, Bitcoin, which is actually designed to become more scarce over time, which is, so it's designed to accomplish the opposite outcome. Okay. I mean, I've heard this philosophy before yeah. where, you know, if the central banks or the Fed has the power to print money, then in a way they're stealing from you. Right, because over time, the value of your money goes down and you know, whatever you're earning is just not keeping up with inflation. And therefore, the whole Bitcoin and cryptocurrency comes in, right? But now that you've painted this picture of the market cycles for us, what's your trading strategy? Well, I think at the very least, something that people need to understand is that inflation is real and it's about to increase because we've just printed a whole bunch of money to deal with COVID. So I think that everyone needs to have a strategy that goes beyond um, 
holding savings in the bank. That is, in the words of, of finance professionals, that's a negative carry exercise, which means that you are losing purchasing power every moment of every day, right? You're even, you know, on an annualized basis, you could think about it on a daily basis, right? In a one day time frame, you theoretically have less purchasing power than you had one day before. That's not really how it works, but inflation is not something that just happens uh, periodically. So it's happening all the time. So I think the trading strategy needs to be something that produces uh, income, generates upside without taking a lot of market risk. And I think that there's a common conception that uh, 100% of crypto trading is uh, highly volatile and you lose all your money. There's a very popular trade right now, which uh, we have a subsidiary business that's running for institutional clients called the basis trade. And there is a opportunity um, to, there are what we call futures, uh, which is the future price of an asset uh, that trade at a difference to the current price of that asset. So uh, there's a gap between uh, the future price of Bitcoin, which we can buy and sell today right now in real time, and the current price of Bitcoin. So if you were to go long uh, at what we call the spot, which is the current price, and short the future, because the future is trading at a premium, over time, uh, so you're you're going short something that's above the current market price, and you're going long something at the market price. And over time, that uh, I guess the arbitrage opportunity or the gap between those asset prices will converge. So your sh- your short will start to make money, and your long will start to make money until you converge at a point where um, they meet. And this is called the carry trade or the basis trade uh, in in crypto. So you can do this trade quite profitably without taking any directional risk, which means that you are half long and half short. Uh, so it's a, it, you can use leverage quite successfully, and it's effectively free money. It's what I tend to think about as the risk-free rate in crypto. I thought of something similar. Is it like the uh, Delta neutral strategy? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It is That's Delta what neutral. It is. Yeah. So, so let's let's go through it again. Sure, sure, understand sure. it, right? So what am I shorting in this case? So, okay. So you're shorting a futures contract that has a specific date in the future. There is also what's called perpetual futures, which are effectively one hourly futures that rotate and roll over. Okay. And and uh, when I'm shorting something, I, I think that it will go down in value in the future, right? Yes, yeah. so correct. So help me understand this part. Sure. So uh, the way that uh, these assets are priced, uh, the when so if people are very, very bullish in uh, on Bitcoin, for example, they have the ability to go long and go further long on Bitcoin uh, using these futures markets. So what that tends to do is because there's so there's more people buying Bitcoin and using this instrument of a future, um, they're using those instruments and they're pushing up the price of the asset. So that causes a premium, a gap in the price. People who are mining Bitcoin will actually go and sell or short that future to effectively lock in whatever that price is to uh, be able to sell because they know miners, for example, know that they will be producing X number of Bitcoins at that point in the future. So miners are using uh, the futures to basically hedge their positions because they don't want, what if the market crashes in six months and the price of Bitcoin is 50% lower? So what they'd like to do is they'd actually like to sell or short the future. And buyers are using leverage to go long the future to effectively get more and more exposure. So they're pushing the future price up and these uh, miners are using it to push the price down. So what tends to happen in uh, very bullish market scenarios, which is most of the time for Bitcoin, 
there is more buying power on these futures than there are well, then there is selling power. So that means that the price of, of Bitcoin at a future point in time, the market has priced that as being worth more. So there is a opportunity if because over time, uh, if you're trading a future that it has a, that's a, going to expire tomorrow, basically there's not going to be much of a premium. Whereas if you're trading a future that's further out the curve, uh, there's going to be a bigger premium. So there's a gap between those two prices. So, but over time, that gap narrows. And so what that means is that the uh, future price currently is trading at a higher than market price, and it will go down over time uh, to hit the market price. So you're, if you already have Bitcoin, you can short this future, and you'll be uh, betting on those two prices converging towards each other. So you make money on the short, uh, and you're already long the asset. Mm-hmm. So you're half long, half short. So you actually are not exp- exposed to the price movements of Bitcoin. If Bitcoin goes up 10,000 or down 2,000, you still have that 50% long and 50% short, which counteracts any market movements up or down. So it's like an insurance, so it's like a hedge, like you're saying. Yeah. And you're describing a relationship between people who are long or bullish on Bitcoin, for example, yeah. and the miners' point of view, they know how much Bitcoin they're going to mine. They, they roughly, roughly have a number, yeah. and then they are, they're shorting on that. Yeah, so miners use this to hedge. That's right. That's yes. just a form of like hedging for themselves. Yes. Okay, so this is one trading strategy. Correct. Yeah. What else? I think another one that, that I often look at is, I mean, there's there's technical ways to do this as well, right? So um, I guess one of the key indicators that I've been looking at over the past two years has been the RSI. So the RSI is like a momentum indicator, and uh, it tells you basically what the... What the it, it, tells you the momentum of the price movements in the market. So I think most people probably have a trading view account. So interestingly, the um, and I'll go through a few more things that I look at uh, shortly, but the RSI peaked in the recent market movements in Bitcoin in February. How, so the RSI was decreasing, showing that- RSI the stands for? Relative Strength Index. I was going to say Stochastic Index. I don't know why. So it's the <laughs> uh, Relative Strength Index. Okay. Uh, okay. So it, it, it basically it measures-, measures yeah. Uh, the momentum of the market. Okay. And so when the momentum is decreasing, but asset prices are increasing, mm. what that tells you is that this is a bull market that's running out of steam. And uh, we've seen it go the other way as well when asset prices are decreasing and RSI is increasing. Um, it happened <clears throat> last month. So if there's a discrepancy between what the RSI is doing versus what asset prices are doing, we tend to call that a RSI divergence. So that's when one thing is going... Uh, when the market price is moving in one direction and the RSI is moving in another direction. So that tends to signify, well, at some point that there will be a reversal of whatever the price movement is. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. So that's one of them. Um, I also look at some um, some on-chain indicators. So one of my favorites, and if you watch my podcast on, on the Alpha Impact YouTube channel, I talk a lot about the R-HODL ratio. So the uh, now we're talking about on-chain analytics. So on-chain uh, analysis is really interesting because it allows you to see uh, 
what people are doing with their bitcoins. Okay, because the thing about crypto is open and available to anyone. That's right. On yeah. chain, right? You That's can just right. take a look at what other wallets are doing. And it, you can actually look at this. You can look at all the wallets in aggregate. And one of the interesting ways that uh, some much smarter people than me have figured out is, well, you look at not only um, what wallets are doing, but the bitcoins that are moving around. How long were they sitting still before they moved? And that gives us an indication of the types of people that are holding bitcoins. So. People that hold Bitcoin for a very long time, we tend to think of them as whales. If mm. they bought it long enough ago, now they've become millionaires and they're, they, they're not affected by a small price movement, right? Because they're still way ahead of where they started. Whereas people who bought Bitcoin last Tuesday will be very, very uh, attuned to the market movements because they, it doesn't take very much to cause them to lose money on their investment, right? So what this gives us is it gives us a sense of what are people doing based on the age of the Bitcoins that they're moving? So the R hodl ratio is, I guess- R hodl is R hodl, okay. yeah. So people can just Google this. It's R H O D L ratio. And it it's actually a, an easier to read version of another chart, which is the hodl waves, uh, which shows you the behavior of all of the Bitcoins on the blockchain based on when that Bitcoin was last moved. And what you, and I'll just summarize um, in a bear market, no Bitcoins move around. And in a bull market, a lot of Bitcoins move around. So you tend to see that in a bull market, a large proportion of the Bitcoins are have recently been moved. And when things aren't so bullish, you tend to see Bitcoins just sitting there. They don't move. Um, what the r hodl ratio tries to do is it tries to quantify the relationship between those two groups. So if you think about it, long-term Bitcoins that have been sitting still for a long time, what is the behavior of that group of holders? versus short-term. And when the short-term uh, people are selling and when the long-term people are selling, it actually reflects it on a chart. So I recommend that your listeners check, uh, take a look at this chart. It's really easy to read. Uh, so it's the r hodl ratio. And basically there's a, there's a red line that goes up when whales are selling and down when whales are buying. And there's a, along the top of the chart, there's a red zone. And along the bottom of the chart, there's a green zone. And basically, at the top of every bull market in history, the whales massively sell whatever Bitcoins they have to get out into cash. And so what that means is that this r hodl ratio, the actual indicator, goes up and it hits the red zone. So it's, it's super easy to understand because basically, if the line hits the red sign, zone, time to sell, if the line hits the green zone, time to buy. If the line is moving from the green zone towards the red zone, we're in a bull market. If it's going the other way, we're in a bear market. And every bull and bear cycle in history has touched the green zone and the red zone once, right? So it's, it really simplifies Bitcoin ownership because you don't need to do a lot of thinking anymore, um, but it does tend to be a macro strategy, right? This is like a two to three year investment time horizon. but it's probably the easiest way that people can just look at something and it's like, are we in the red zone? Are we in the green zone? Or what is the direction of travel between red and green? There's three things you need to understand. That's it. So it's a really easy way to kind of understand where we are in the macro cycle. Why is it two or three years? Because crypto moves much faster than other markets. Well, we follow four-year cycles. Okay. Um, and then at some point, I guess, between hitting the green zone... Uh, the market realizes, oh, hey, we're going to have a halving next year. That means prices are going to go up. I better buy now before prices go up. 
So that actually causes uh, a little mini, uh, it, it causes an uplift from the halving. So last year, the halving took place in May. Uh, we obviously had a crash in March, but uh, you saw right after May, I mean, we traded sideways for a while, but then we did go up. So, uh, you know, it comes back to this idea of a four-year cycle. Okay, so you're looking at what the, the whales are doing and if a lot of them are buying or if a lot of them are selling and then you talk about the red line and the green line, right? Yeah. And, and so it, it, without even understanding all the complexities of it, yeah. you can just look at the lines and make your decisions from that point. Well, it, it, it's basically like, if you think about all the Bitcoins that are, that are trading in the past hour, for example, right? Um, what percentage of those are whale Bitcoins versus short-term Bitcoins? And... Uh, and then you look at the next hour, and then the next hour, and the next hour. And if you see that the whales are buying, then that tells you something. If you see the whales are selling, that tells you something else. So, yeah, it's it's the it's the relationship between whales and I guess shrimps you could call them. Okay, okay. Anything else about trading strategies they want to share with us before we move on to another topic? The other point that I wanted to make is that Bitcoin does tend to lead the market, and you have to realize Bitcoin is is the least volatile cryptocurrency, the least volatile. So what that means is a 2000% return is considered low volatility in crypto in the 2016, 2017 timeframe. Um, so one strategy, because Bitcoin tends to lead the market and other stuff tends to follow, it's important to buy small coins you've never heard of as well. Now, some of them, uh, there's this comes back to your idea of is it holding or is it uh, just trading. And in terms of trading, I'll tell you, one of the best decisions I made last year in November was I went on Binance and I found, um, what was I looking for? I think I found 25 different currencies that had been around since 2017 uh, that were way below the all-time high and that had not yet gone up. And I just put, it might have been like $100 into 25 of these different random tokens $100 um, divided by 25 tokens? No, no, no. Oh, into just $100 each. each, into each. Okay. Or it might have been 200 or 500 I can't right. remember. But like very small investment mm -hmm. amounts. And at that point in time, it's really spray and pray. I wasn't looking at anything except was this around in 2017? And am I going to invest? Yes or no? And so I just looked at 25 or 30 different coins. I put small investments into each one. And uh, that has become an excellent strategy. So I think it's the other point to make. So... That would be my other point. Um, DeFi and NFT platform tokens tend to be good investments as well. So if your um, individual DeFi projects or individual DeFi products or individual NFTs, it's very difficult for people to figure out what's hot and what's not without even being in the industry. And I'm in the industry and I sometimes can't keep up with it all. So, But I think what you can see very clearly is there's because everything is on chain, you can see this blockchain data. If you could see that a platform is succeeding commercially, I mean, the metric in, in uh, DeFi is TVL, total value locked. Um, and so if, if platforms are doing well and platforms have a token and the platform incentivizes you to use their token for their platform, that means that that token should be a good investment over time. And this has been true for exchanges in the centralized world. Now in the decentralized world, you have Aave and Curve and many, many other platforms. So I think it's important to have platform tokens that are kind of in your portfolio as well. And then the last one is timing. When everyone says that this is the end of crypto and it's over, and when you start seeing news articles about um, crypto is down 99%, people going, you know, losing their money, 
that's the time to start buying. Um, and it's very difficult to turn off your mind because we're all risk averse, right? We don't want to lose. There's the buy to dip strategy. Exactly. Um, and, and the other part is if you hear about something in the news that's gone up 10 million percent, whether it's GameStop or, or anything or Ethereum, the moment, you know, there's this indicator that uh, someone in the US invented called the shoe shine index, which is if your shoe shine person is talking to you about an investment, get out. You need to get out, right? So I think something that a lot of, you know, and I have a whole team of young people that that I work with at Alpha Impact is if a lot of people start becoming aware of new investments because something's in the media, because it's on Reddit, because it's uh, popular, it's in the news, that's, you've missed it. It's too late, basically. So don't buy short. Uh, and so when Bitcoin is at the absolute top of the market cycle, it can guarantee JP Morgan is going to come out and say, Bitcoin is going to $5 million. Everyone on earth will be talking about Bitcoin. Your taxi driver, your teacher, your server at the restaurant, every single person you come in touch with. So at that point in time, you need to sell or short. And when people are saying, this is it, it's over, Bitcoin is done, crypto is finished forever, it's all a scam, it's down to zero, um, that's the time to start buying. And it's very tough to do that. But if you can do that, um, don't buy in all at once, just start averaging in. And you know, people always think they need to buy an entire $50,000 Bitcoin. You can buy um, you can buy a very small amount of stuff. You can invest $1 on these exchanges or $10 or $20. Um, so I think my philosophy would be to slowly make these investments over time. Let's go into each of them a little deeper. So you mentioned buying small coins because Bitcoin leads the way. And you, you say it was a spray and pray strategy and it worked out pretty well. Is that because when Bitcoin leads the way, the altcoins or you know any other coins apart from Bitcoin just will go up at a higher percentage compared to Bitcoin? Yes, that's correct. Yeah, okay. I mean, there's, there's kind of three phases that the market cycle goes in it. Bitcoin goes up then Bitcoin stops going up and goes sideways, and then Ethereum and altcoins go up, uh, and then Ethereum and altcoins start to go sideways, and then everything dumps. Okay. Uh, and then Bitcoin goes up, and then Ethereum and altcoins, and then dump. Do you so, think that strategy can be uh, replicated, though? Absolutely, it, ha it happens oh, okay. like once a month. Uh, so oh. absolutely, yeah. Random small coins that you, you Oh, no, no, sorry, not random small okay. coins. Yeah. Um, I, so this is kind of a directional strategy that I would suggest with a six to 12 month time horizon. So uh, with that strategy, you need to buy when it's clear there's a sustained uptrend in the market. But if you're making small enough investments, it really shouldn't matter. And I don't think that people should be making investments that like you can't invest with money that you need for stuff, right? Okay. For your okay. rent or, or anything like that. So you're saying like $100, $200 per coin. Yeah. Or, or you could start smaller, right? Like the transaction mm. costs are so small in some exchanges. Um, you need to just be careful uh, that you... One thing I would say... If you're trading on a crypto exchange and there's a button that says buy $100 worth of Bitcoin, I can guarantee it is a much worse price than if you just figure out how to use the native trading uh, on that app. And there's crypto exchanges like FTX uh, that do a really great job at giving you good prices, Binance, same thing. Uh, but don't ever press the buy $100 button because that has higher fees for sure. Okay, and the second part you mentioned, DeFi and NFTs are definitely yep. worth it as well. Like, tell us a bit more about that. Sure, so um, let me start by introducing what is DeFi, right? Because I think that's important for people to understand. So um, DeFi refers to decentralized finance. And I guess it started, uh, the foundation started back in 2015 when Ethereum came out. 
that was a smart contract platform. Now, a smart contract is basically just a, a self-executing contract. So let's talk about you borrow $100 from me, and then I say, well, I, I don't know you that well. I'm not going to loan you $100 unless you give me, I don't know, your iPhone. So it'd be a pretty bad deal for you, but let's just pretend. So you give me your iPhone as collateral. I give you the 100 bucks in cash. When you give me back the $100, I give you back your iPhone. So DeFi, at least on the lending side, is like a self-executing contract. So I'm giving you Bitcoin. And I'm putting it into what's called a smart contract. I'm borrowing uh, another currency like USDT, for example. And if, so there's, it's basically just executing based on conditions. If the Bitcoin that you've given starts to fall in value, that smart contract will sell the Bitcoin automatically. But let's just assume the Bitcoin stays the same. So I give you $100 worth of Bitcoin. I borrow, I don't know, $20 worth of USDT. Um, once I repay that $20 worth of USDT, my Bitcoin comes back to me. And so all of this is done without any human interaction. So we're designing contracts to execute automatically without having to deal with people, basically. So that's what a smart contract is. Um, Ethereum built this as the first smart contract platform. And so on the back of all of this, you've had all of these very complex, and I don't have time to get into all of them, but lending is probably the easiest to understand. Uh, so Aave is one really, really popular um, lending protocol. It does just what I've described. So there's all these decentralized, uh, fine, and it's not just lending. There's robo-advisory. There's like crypto ETFs, every different type of Im investment you can imagine. Uh, there is now a DeFi protocol that allows you to put money, not with a person who's managing your money, like at the bank, but with a smart contract who's doing something with it. Uh, and so that's one version of, of DeFi. Um, there's lots and lots of other more complex versions, but that's kind of what DeFi is. And so um, when I looked at DeFi first last year, I remember thinking of SNX, Aave, uh, what were some other ones? Ampleforth. There's all these different use cases. And uh, DeFi was just extremely exciting last year. Yield farming became very, very popular. With yield farming, you are the idea of yield farming comes back to this idea of having what's called a liquidity pool, which um, is a little bit complex. But if you think about a market where you can interchange asset one for asset two without actually having buyers and sellers for asset one and two, uh, it's basically a pool. And uh, you start with, let's say, USD and Bitcoin. Uh, so you start with $50 of Bitcoin and $50 of USD. And so uh, I put in the $50 of, and of Bitcoin and $50 of USD. You can come along and you can use your Bitcoin to buy USD, or you can use USD to buy Bitcoin. But the way that this works, uh, you will actually be charged a, a fee if you move the ratio of those assets from 50-50. So we start off with $50 of one and $50 of the other one. If you buy all the USD, the price you're going to get for that um, purchase is very, very bad because you'll be deviating very far from 50-50. So a liquidity pool is like a mathematical way to exchange assets via these liquidity pools. And so the use case for people, this became very popular around this time last year, a bit earlier, was you could become a liquidity provider. So there'd be all these new protocols, all these new tokens that would come out. And they would say, hey, we want you to add value to our liquidity pool. And if you add value to our liquidity pool, we will compensate you. We'll share the fees that are generated with you. 
and will give you, will effectively subsidize your participation. So yield farming or DeFi farming uh, became very popular last year because uh, this was a very, very popular way for people to earn money. And you could earn, if you're the first one in that liquidity pool, you can earn 5,000%, 10,000%. So there's some pretty good returns. Uh, so that that's kind of what DeFi is. And I guess the challenge for, for people wanting to invest in DeFi is if you don't want to do this yield farming, if it's too complicated, just go and buy the tokens that correspond to those platforms. And you're seeing the potential because, and I'm asking this, um, well, we spent a lot of time today talking about trading and yeah. people can understand it from a traditional finance point of view, right? About how trading yeah. works and all that. We do have a few episodes on cryptocurrencies. So we, we have one on DeFi as well. You can yeah. go search for it if you're listening to this podcast right now. And so I, I think we get, get the idea, but I just want to dig deeper into your thoughts. Like, And you're seeing the potential because why? Uh, you mentioned total value lock. That's one thing. Yeah. What else? Well, I think that there's a... We haven't gone into NFTs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think, um, I mean, last year, it was very exciting to be part of DeFi because you could make a 10,000% annualized investment return and you could make that return in a very short amount of time. So anytime that there's a new innovation that comes around, uh, we're kind of creating an ecosystem where you used to need traditional counterparts because a lot of these things are based on smart contracts, they don't require trust. So we're doing for crypto what has been done over many years in the traditional financial markets uh, ecosystem, if you want to call it that. And we don't need to talk to the banks and you don't need to talk to the regulator. And some of them, I'm sure, should be talking to the regulator, but aren't. So it just tends to create an exciting uh, phenomenon where people are making money. That creates... Um, I think that the, one of the strongest drivers of all crypto bull markets, which is recycled capital, if you make a lot of money on the first deal, then you have 10 times more, you could do 10 more deals and then 100 and then 1,000 and so on. So um, that principle of recycled capital is um, enabled by whatever is happening. And at that time, it was DeFi. In 2017 and 18, it was ICOs. Uh, now it's NFTs. Um, and I think making sense of all of this can be very confusing, which is actually one of the reasons we decided to open Alpha Impact, this uh, social trading app. Okay, so NFTs. Yeah. Well, we, we can still understand trading yeah. in, in cryptocurrencies, but how, how do you evaluate NFTs then? Um, okay, let, let's talk about it from an art sure. point of view since we all have our Beepo and the $69 million yeah. sold and right now we have CryptoPunks and you see all these avatars on Twitter and, and whatnot, right? So, but how, how do you value that if I'm coming from a traditional finance point of view? Sure. Um, well, let me, let me talk about uh, my journey in NFTs. I mean, I think most people look at a picture of a rock and say that it should not be worth millions of dollars, right? Yeah, how like, much is it right now? How many ether? <laughs> I don't know. I'm yeah. not keeping track. But uh, I, I think most people, if if that's the first thing you hear about NFTs, you think, this is crazy, right? Um, and, and let me tell you what um, my journey with NFTs has been. So I uh, have not bought any NFTs, but I guess I started my journey wondering, how can these things possibly be worth so much? And what it effectively comes down to, and, and this will start with Beeple, um, I mean, the value of any piece of art, like if you think about the Mona Lisa, for example, it's worth, let's call it 100 million. I can have an exact replica of the Mona Lisa, uh, even done on canvas. I'm sure there's people that do this professionally, right? They create a fake of the Mona Lisa, but I, it's not the real Mona Lisa. You know it's not the real Mona Lisa. So even if it looks exactly the same, you will know that the Mona Lisa hanging in my house is not the real one. Why? Because 
it's in the Louvre in Paris. And if it had been stolen, you would know, and I wouldn't presumably be showing it to you. So the value of art is, uh, I think, directly tied to the authenticity of that art. So with the case of NFTs, what we're doing is we're saying, this item that I'm creating is special to me. And I will accept that there's a bit more excitement in the space than I think it's been very surprising to see the level of interest. But the fundamental value transfer that's occurring is you're having an artist express themselves and say, okay, this is something that I've put a lot of time and effort into, and this is special to me. And here you go, it's, it's yours forever, and you can prove that it's yours. So even if someone else has an exact JPEG copy of that file, you will know on the blockchain that the ownership does not belong to them. So it's about the authenticity of the ownership. Okay. So, I mean, as, as I mentioned, we, we talk a lot about trading. And yeah. I, I believe in DeFi as well. And yeah. we're like scratching the, the surface of it and there's still developments on, ongoing. Yeah. And we can really you know, tap into the potential of that, taking out the, the middleman, taking out the banks, for example, mm. and directly P2P, peer-to-peer kind of a, a relationship in our financial contract through yeah. the use of a smart contract. I can see how that has potential, although it might be hard to quantify at this point in time. I mean, you can walk to the moon, like they say it, but it's it's just that much harder. I do think that NFTs has a has a use case. I'm, I'm trying to say that it's that much harder to apply that to to NFTs. You know how should you think about it? Yeah. And again, that is also barely scratching the surface. I mean, there's so much more, so many more use cases that we can have for NFTs. You know, in in the real life, real estate, and and all yeah. that. And it's, it's just very hard to explain to people who are you know not into it and to make them see the value of it. Yeah, well, I think there's different layers, right? So I guess on the on the very bottom layer, you have people that are buying N NFT uh, or X NFT for such a reason that they think that that piece of art is worthwhile. That's a uh, genuine piece of work. I think it's great. Then on top of that, you have a speculative layer, which we have in Bitcoin and other assets as well. Some people don't care about what it is. They just want to make money, right? And then uh, I guess the next layer on top of that would be, you know, real assets, NFTs of real assets. And there's a company called Art Wall Street that I just came across. They're doing some really cool stuff. And they're actually creating a marketplace for NFTs based, uh, partly NFTs based on existing NFTs, which they do some really cool cross-chain stuff with on different blockchains, but also NFTs based on real art. So what you're doing is you're giving a creative person, an artist, an ability to monetize, rent, sell, timeshare, fractionalize, something that's a real piece of art. So you're bringing value from old into digital. So that's that's just one example of a company I came across. Do you think that we need to switch on a different brain, put on different lenses, you know, come up with a different framework for evaluating NFTs as compared to whatever we just shared about well, trading cryptocurrencies? Yeah, I mean, I think there's, there's different ways to think about it, right? There will always be people who are excited to make money and they don't care. But there is a layer of innovation that's happening where artists can share their work with the world, real assets, um, you know, including with this company, Art Wall Street, that I discovered, um, will be tokenized. And so there's actually a lot of innovation that's happening That's that I think we do need to think about it differently. But of course, there's a FOMO, you know, Moon Hype, Rambo, yeah. all that kind of stuff. Okay. All right. Thank you, Hayden. Hey, I hope you've learned something useful today and I truly appreciate that you took time off to better your life with the financial coconuts. Knowledge is that much more powerful and interesting when shared, debated, and discussed. Join our community Telegram group, follow us on our socials, sign up for our weekly newsletter. Everything is in the description. 
If you love us and want to help us grow, definitely share the podcast with your friends and on your socials. For more information, check out thefinancialcoconut.com. With that, have a great day ahead, stay tuned next week, and remember, personal finance can be chill, clear, and sustainable for all. I have three last questions for you. Sure. The first one is, what is one core life principle that you hold? Core life principle? Well, I've, I've worked for many years um, at the intersection of crypto and traditional finance. Um, started off in an investment banking role, um, moved into, I guess, working at an exchange, and now at Alpha Impact, which is copy trading. But I guess the, the principle that I've, that's really guided me in my journey has been, I need to make this crypto asset class make sense for the rest of the world, right? Right now, we're still living in a space where only 20% of uh, people own cryptocurrencies. And the value set over time is is massive, owning crypto. If, if institutions decided that they just wanted to have 1% or 0.1% of their assets under management into crypto, um, that would be something like a trillion dollars that would flow into the space. So I think, uh, I think 1% is a trillion dollars. So... Figuring this asset class out is very confusing. And so that's kind of what led me down this path of creating this social media website where people can copy a top trader. So I guess that's my kind of philosophy. How can we make this confusing world of crypto make sense to the rest of the world? Okay. What is one piece of financial advice that you think should be shared more often? I think that it's important to not leave investing until too late. Uh, You know, let's talk about planning for retirement. We don't tend to think about that till we're at least in our late 20s and starting to think about work and stuff. But, you know, the math, you know, compounding return and exponentiation is, is, is a thing, right? And if you start saving earlier, it's better. Um, so my philosophy has always been that I need to put money away in a bad month or in a good month. Um, whether it's a dollar or a hundred dollars or a hundred thousand dollars, it all adds up. So that's something that I think, you know, younger, a younger version of myself would want to know. Okay. What is one area of your life that you are giving additional focus right now? <sighs> Decorating my apartment? No, uh, <laughs> I'm joking. For real? Well, it uh, could be. <laughs> well, it's uh, no. I moved recently, and uh, it's like it's so hard when you just can't figure out how to do stuff and you're working. But um, I got really interested in in uh, I guess like immunology and science last year during lockdown, and it's got to do with COVID. <laughs> well, it does have to do like I just. I became, I'm, I had never thought about science before. I think I got a C in biology in high school. Uh, I just became very interested and that's something that, so in, now instead of uh, music, when I go to the gym, I actually listen to medical medical school lectures uh, that are like on YouTube, uh, which doesn't really help me, but it's, uh, I like to be learning always. Okay. Something to take my mind off work. Something to take my mind off work. That assumes that I ever take my mind off work. Yeah, it's, because right after this interview, Hayden's going to go to work. <laughs> yeah, making crypto trading make sense for everyone. That's alpha impact. Yeah. All right, all right. Thank you. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.